The following audio has been brought to you by Word of Grace Community Church. For more information about Word of Grace, visit wogcc.com. This week we're going to jump right back into 1 Timothy, and we're going to go to the second chapter. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip over to the second chapter of the book of 1 Timothy. I'm just going to give you a little bit of some of the groundwork here. I'm sure that Pastor Stephen also gave you some of the groundwork of 1 Timothy, but remember, this was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy, who was a young minister in the city of Ephesus, which was a really large area uh, in the Greek area where there's a lot of people that are relatively new to the gospel. This is kind of a new thing that they're hearing about, a new thing that they've experienced, and so Christianity is not only brand new, but it's especially brand new about worshiping the one true God, Jehovah, worshiping the God uh, of Scripture. This is a new concept for a lot of these people. And this letter was written by Paul to Timothy while uh, Nero was in authority over the Roman Empire. He was the emperor. And if you remember from maybe high school, from some of the history lessons that you took, you would remember just a little bit about Nero. And if you don't remember, he was just a really, really bad guy. Nero was one of the most notorious, ruthless leaders in all of history, quite frankly. Just a very wicked man, was responsible for a lot of persecution of the church and uh, killing Christians, and was uh, part of uh, burning down the uh, city of Rome and then passed off the blame to the Christians, which further ignited the people's passion to want to kill Christians and created a lot of what we have read about in uh, books like Fox's Book of Martyrs of all the different people who have laid down their lives for the cause of Christ. A lot of that happened during Nero's reign, and he was one of the driving forces behind that. Just a very evil, evil, wicked man. And here you have one of the most despicable leaders that history has ever recorded, and Paul is writing to Timothy especially in this second section that we're going through today, about how to live in a world and how to interact with such a type of leadership that's in place in the government that may be very contrary to the way that we live, to the way we believe. How do we handle this as Christians? As a matter of fact, the entire second chapter of 1 Timothy was written to the local church to help us to understand how we should be representatives of Christ, how we should conduct ourselves in a world that lives, thinks, and believes very different, very contrary to the way that we as Christians are called to live, think, and believe. The main idea of this chapter is to help us to live in our world and in our culture as the church so we can still continue to further the gospel. Because that's what Paul wanted Timothy to get. He didn't want him to get overwhelmed by the circumstances. He didn't want him to be intimidated by the current situation he was in. He wanted Timothy to be able to lead this church, to be able to truly thrive, and for the gospel to spread all over that area. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read 1 Timothy chapter 2, and let's start in verse 1. We'll read down through verse 8, and then we'll kind of stop and pick up uh, a little bit of thoughts there. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. Paul says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. He said, for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good 
and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I'm a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Let's stop right there. The theme that as we look through this portion of this letter that I really want us to get today, that I want us to kind of zero in on and get the intent of what Paul is trying to communicate to Timothy that I believe the Holy Spirit of God is communicating to us today is that regardless of what situation we may find ourselves in, regardless of the climate of the culture of the day and the pressures, eternity matters more. Eternity matters more. Because could you imagine here being Timothy, receiving this letter from Paul, and he's saying, pray for all people, especially those in authority, those in leadership. He was referencing Nero. He was referencing the bad guy, all right? You read in the history books, the bad guy in the history books would be Nero. And Paul is saying, pray for this person because God desires that all men would come to repentance. In other words, Jesus Christ died for everyone, including Nero. Now, Paul understood this because was very, Paul was very in tune with the fact that he was a sinner. He was very in tune with the fact that he had persecuted the church. And he understood that God could save him and redeem him. And so here he's wanting Timothy to understand you need to pray for your leaders, those who are in authority, because eternity matters more. Let me ask you this question. How many of you wish that things were different in our government? I'll take it by your soft, mumbling laughter that that means you wish things were different. We all wish that things were different in our government. Now, do you not think that the frustrations that we have are small in contrast to the fear and frustrations that the children of God would have had under a leader like Nero because their very lives were at stake because of their faith and their beliefs. And as much as we are called to pray for our leaders and as much as we may understand that, you see, Paul was telling Timothy to pray for the very person that's out there trying to kill you that's trying to eradicate Christianity off of the face of the earth. He said, pray for that person, because that person has a soul, and that person's eternity is at stake, and that person's eternity matters. Matters more than your grumbling or your complaining. That's why he said in verse 2 that we should live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is pleasing to the Lord, who desires all people to be saved. Now we can complain, we can gripe all of those things that people get caught up doing about leadership, but are we praying? Because it does something to our heart when we engage in praying for even the people who persecute us, even the people who may not be making the decisions that we want them to make, even the people who aren't giving us our way. 
Because the goal is not to have a nice, happy, comfortable life. The goal is eternity. If you look at the life of Christ, you see over and over again, he kept talking about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. He was trying to emphasize what's important to God, and what's important to God should be important to us. And that's eternity. Because God sees this thing in a lot bigger picture than you and I see it. Our picture is often so small and it only is what our lives touch and what our human experience is. But God is looking at this through eternity and he's saying, listen guys, as much as you want a comfortable life and as important as that is to you, eternity still matters more. So what if you live under a regime that's persecuting you? Eternity matters more. You have to learn how to live in that type of world where those things are happening. So Paul didn't say... We need to come up with a strategy to change the government or the system. Instead, he said, why don't we instead pray for their soul? Because God desires that all men would come to saving faith and saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That was the strategy. The strategy is, let's instead not allow our hearts to get hard towards another person, because then all of a sudden we begin comparing ourselves with somebody else. We begin saying, oh, well, I'm not as wicked as Nero. Or I'm not as bad as Nero. And then all of a sudden we begin to compartmentalize our sin. And this sin is bad and this sin is okay and tolerable. And this sin is egregious in the eyes of God. And this sin is, you know, somewhat, you know, something we're not really too, making too big of a deal about. When the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul understood. He said, listen guys, I'm the chief sinner out of the bunch. He said, and if God could save someone like me, then we need to make sure our hearts don't get hard towards those who may be doing things we disagree with. There's a story in Scripture that illustrates this in such a powerful way. Jesus had an interaction with a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector of the day during Jesus' time, and he was a Jewish man who was collecting taxes from Jewish people on behalf of the Roman government. So the taxes that Zacchaeus would collect went to the Romans, not to the Jewish people. And this guy was a Jewish citizen, basically collecting taxes on behalf of the, the, the regime that was actually occupying their, uh, their homeland. And not only was Zacchaeus a tax collector, but he was a chief tax collector. And he was a really wicked dude, and nobody likes tax collectors especially ones that are collecting taxes on behalf of an occupying government. Because the occupying government, the Romans, they didn't care if Zacchaeus added surcharges to line his own pockets. The main thing to the Romans was that Zacchaeus just funneled the money that was owed them to the Roman government. And if he added an extra percent or two here or there, that was Zacchaeus' business, and he had the freedom to do that because he was the chief tax collector. And he had been doing this for years. He had been lining his own pockets from his own countrymen by taking advantage of a situation where the Romans were the occupying force in the country at that time. You could imagine nobody liked Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was not a popular guy. And he was a short man, the Bible says. He was of short stature, so I guess he had little man syndrome where he felt the need to be important by exercising whatever authority he had over other people. And so he would regularly exercise his authority over other people by taking more money from them, especially if they didn't treat him a certain way, because he had the authority to do that. 
If someone looked at Zacchaeus wrong that day, he could say, oh, when you come and pay your taxes, extra 2% for you. What? You want to make it three? That was who Zacchaeus was. And nobody liked this guy. And Jesus comes into town, and the crowds are just all around Jesus, following Jesus to hear what he says or to see him perform a miracle or whatever the case may be. They're so excited to follow Jesus. And here's this crowd just all surrounding. And Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming by, and he wants to see Jesus. So Zacchaeus, being a short guy, wants to get a good view, and he kind of wants to hide from the crowd too. Because he's not the guy that likes to be out in the public and likes everybody to see him because everyone's going to mumble and complain. And so he's, he's hiding and he's wanting to get a better vantage point. And so Zacchaeus climbs up in a tree and he's got all the foliage around him. And so he thinks he's pretty well hidden, but he's got a good view and he hears Jesus coming and all the people began to talk and Jesus is coming and then he stops. And Jesus said, I see you, Zacchaeus. He said, Zacchaeus, why don't you come down from that tree? Uh-oh, you've just been found out by Jesus. He spotted me. Oh, no, I'm caught. Zacchaeus has no idea what's going to happen. All he knows is that Jesus has found him. He's already called his name, and he's asked him to come down amongst everybody, the people he was trying to avoid. And here Zacchaeus comes down the tree, and Jesus says to him, Come down out of that tree, Zacchaeus, because I'm coming to your house today. And you would think the crowd would erupt with applause. Jesus, the Son of God, is going to Zacchaeus' house. Maybe there will be a heart change there. Praise the Lord. Nope. Of course the crowd didn't respond that way. What do you think they did? Same thing you and I would do. Can you believe Jesus is going to... Jesus ain't never come over my house. Jesus ain't come over my house and he's going over Zach's house? Do you, I don't think Jesus knows how bad this guy, he took my family and, 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 and man, we had barely been able to eat because of the taxes this guy imposed on us. Everybody's gossiping, complaining, everybody's upset in that very moment. But because Jesus gave Zacchaeus that value in that moment and gave him the, the, the honor of him coming to his house, it made Zacchaeus' heart melt. And the Bible doesn't say that Zacchaeus preached, uh, or Jesus preached a sermon to Zacchaeus, or he gave him some good advice of how he should really pay people back, or anything like that. The Bible just says this is the only interaction they had at this point. But just that interaction of acceptance and love in that moment from someone who was a bad guy in the eyes of the people, it caused his heart to melt. And he says, I'm a sinful man, Lord. He said, he said I will repay back to anyone that I have taken advantage of more. I'll give them a, in addition to what I've taken from them, and I'll pay them back more than what I took from them. It caused him to repent. It caused him to change. It caused something at the heart level to be touched because Jesus is looking at this thing from an eternal perspective as to where the crowd would begin to murmur and complain and say, why is someone doing something for Zacchaeus? Because Jesus has eternity in mind. And when Paul is talking to Timothy about Nero, he's talking to him about leadership and government. He's saying, listen, I've got eternity in mind here, okay? God has an eternal perspective, and he wants us to get it that eternity matters more. You see, the church has a mandate to impact eternity through us being representatives of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus never fought the government or that culture of leaders in his day. As a matter of fact, his biggest opponent was the religious leaders who were distracting from the message and trying to twist Scripture and manipulate people with Scripture. Those were Jesus' biggest opponents. You look at the Apostle Paul all throughout the epistles. We don't see Paul's uh, biggest enemy or biggest rival or opponent being the government leaders of the day. The biggest opponent that the Apostle Paul was constantly warning and fighting against were those who were twisting and manipulating Scripture. And he was constantly telling people to watch out for those types of people who are making Scripture say what they want it to say to please their own ears and their own way of thinking and believing. You see... Over and over and over again, we see that the focus was on the purity of the gospel. That the focus was on making sure that nothing stole or took away from the truth of the gospel because that was truly what would set men free. You see, you never heard Paul preaching a sermon on why the goddess Diana is wrong, but you see him over and over again focusing on purity of the gospel. You see him going after the groups that would teach distortion of the gospel because that was, biggest, that was Paul's biggest concern. Not the fact that Nero was wicked, not the fact that the government was corrupt against Christians, not even that it wasn't just or fair. He was, he, you see folks, just speaking poorly or arguing about the government and those you disagree with, that's not attracting people to Jesus. Don't everybody shout me down when I'm preaching good <laughs> because here's the deal so many times as Christians we want to rally against things and against people and we want to just picket and we want to be angry and we want to just stir up anger towards people or position are we praying for those leaders or are we just stirring up fleshly anger that is not pointing people to Jesus as I look at Scripture and the way we're supposed to live in a world that's very much contrary to the beliefs of Christians and the way that we hold the values of Scripture, I see here that the Apostle Paul says that we're actually supposed to, through supplication, prayer, and intercession, and thanksgiving, that we stand in the gap for those people, for the kings and all the people in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way because this is what's good and what's pleasing in the sight of the Lord because God desires all men to come to the knowledge of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And he even says in verse 8, I desire that in every place men should pray lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. So in other words, when you're praying publicly that you don't use that as a platform to really let people know how you feel. <laughs> oh Lord Jesus, I pray for that old knucklehead. I just pray, Lord, that you help him stop making such dumb decisions because he is really, really dumb. And I pray, God, that you help him to make really good decisions because right now he's making really dumb decisions. And I really disagree with that, and I hope everyone hears and agrees, amen, somebody. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. No, he said, listen, don't use even your public prayer as an opportunity to stir up quarreling, to stir up anger. He said, when you pray, really pray for the person. Pray for their salvation. Pray for their eyes to be open to the truth. Don't allow your heart to get hard just because someone isn't leading or doing things the way you want them to do it. Because do you think Nero was doing what Christians wanted them to do? A absolutely not. Nero was very, 
very countercultural to the way that Christians would have liked to have had a leader. But yet they still had to pray for him. They still had to make sure that their hearts didn't get hard, that they still lived quiet, peaceable lives, because that is what will point people to Jesus. Because, folks, the government's not your Savior. Jesus is. Paul told us, pray for those people. The persecutor of Christians, one of the most evil leaders in history, because Jesus died for all men. He even went one step further and said, when you pray, make sure that you do it with sincerity. 2 Corinthians 5 and 20 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors. We are representatives to preach, to teach, to show, to share the message of reconciliation, to show the gospel. Why? Because, folks, eternity matters more. That's why. Because eternity matters more. Now he gives some more instruction. Let's keep on reading here. Let's pick it back up in verse 9 where we left off after verse 8. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty, with self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Man, let me tell you something. This is the same exact message that's being conveyed from Paul to Timothy that he wants him to share with the church. There was obviously a problem in the church in Ephesus with women dressing immodest and drawing attention to themselves and detracting from the gospel. There was obviously some issue there, and we can look through church history, and we can see in other places where Paul wrote that there were things that were equated to spirituality in people's minds, one of those being material wealth. People thought the more you had, the more spiritual you were. So if you had more gold, you had more uh, jewelry, you had more things, you had nicer clothes, that was equated to blessing and favor. And when you were walking around with all these things on, it didn't matter if you truly knew Christ or not. You sure looked spiritual. You looked the part because you looked like you were blessed. It looked like God was really uh, making you uh, someone special that he wanted everyone else just to see how special you were. And that's what people thought in their minds. It's same problem that Paul had with the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You've heard me teach this before where he was instructing them and chastising them really about the way that they were dealing with communion and the way they were handling communion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you remember that the apostle Paul, he was letting them know, hey, when you guys don't take this seriously, you are drinking judgment under yourselves because you're not taking the Lord's Supper in the way that you should. He said, so therefore you need to examine yourself because what was happening, if you read a little earlier, was that some of the wealthy people thought that they were more special because they could continually afford to receive the Lord's Supper and continually buy nice things and buy the wine and buy the the bread and just heap up on themselves more and more communion. And Paul said, you guys are doing this and some of you are getting sick and some of you are even dying because you're actually missing the point of what you're doing. And he said, it's not about the amount. It's not about the perception that others have that, oh, you can always take this because you're so wealthy. He said, as a matter of fact, we need to remember what Jesus said. And he walks them through the way that they should receive the Lord's Supper. And he cautioned them very strongly to examine themselves, to examine their intent, because they were abusing something because they thought it made them more spiritual. It's the same exact thing that's going on here in Ephesus with 
the women and the way they were dressing. And they were thinking that this is something to show people that I am spiritual, that I am blessed. And Paul's saying, man, you don't need to show people that you're spiritual or that you're blessed because of what you wear on the outside. He said, as a matter of fact, he said, why don't instead you wear respectable apparel and you instead clothe yourself with modesty, with self-control, and why don't you be a woman that professes godliness with your good works instead of the clothes you wear? So it's not about the way that you dress that makes you spiritual. And also, they lived in a highly sexualized culture. And so Paul is most likely also addressing some of the more provocative dress that would cause men's eyes to wonder. And that he was saying, listen, this, even though you're living in this culture, this is how you are to navigate living in a culture that's very much anti-Christ but yet still be an example by the way you dress, by the way that you interact with each other, by the way you pray for government, by the way you talk about leaders, by the way that you interact with each other and the way you care for one another. Because these things, if you keep doing them, will not only be a stumbling block for you, but it will be a stumbling block for the cause of Christ because you're not representing Him and you're only looking at what matters now. You're only wanting things to go your way now. You're only wanting to do the things you feel like are good now instead of thinking about eternity. And Paul was trying to say, listen, eternity matters more. So instead, why don't you clothe yourself in humility? Why don't you clothe yourself in modesty? Why don't you clothe yourself in self-control? Why don't you clothe yourself in godliness, in holiness, instead of allowing your dress to become a stumbling block or a distraction? Because eternity matters more. Amen somebody. You see, eternity truly does matter more. Now let's go through um, the rest of the chapter. Let's pick it up in verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. Adam was deceived, but the, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So this is a fun portion of Scripture. <laughs> Actually, when we planned out our sermon map and in October of last year, and I knew I want to go through the book of 1 Timothy, we didn't think a whole lot about who would be teaching what. And I actually put Pastor Stephen on the weekend to go through this. And once we got closer and we began to study and talk about it as a teaching team, he said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and so I said, I can handle that. We, we can get it because I want us to understand the context of what's happening and to be able to see the truth. Now, let me, let me explain something to you. Uh, when we see things in Scripture that may be difficult or out of context of our culture, it doesn't mean they're any less true. Okay? I grew up in a church where we made the Bible say what we wanted it to say. And I'm not okay with that. I'm not going to pastor that type of church. If the Bible says something that's challenging, I want to make sure I understand what's happening, what's going on. But at the same time, I don't want to make excuses for God. Okay? So just so you know, there you go. Here's what was going on. The Ephesians were wondering where the female leadership was in the church because that's what they were accustomed to. Now, Ephesus was the center of what was called Artemis worship. Artemis Temple, or the Temple of Diana, was one of the seven wonders of the world. 
Okay? If you've ever seen some Greek structures and you've seen some of the old remains of Greek structures, you have most likely seen the Temple of Artemis because it was literally one of the seven wonders of the world, just one of these massive, massive constructs where Artemis worship happened. If you've ever seen a statue from Greek mythology of a woman with multiple breasts, then that's the statue of Artemis because people believed that if they worshiped the goddess Artemis or Diana, that they would be blessed with, uh, with fertility and they would be blessed also in childbirth, that they would have an easy childbirth. And so the people that ran the temple were females. It was a completely female-run organization, and most of the people in the temple, the temple prostitutes, all of the uh, sexual things that went with Artemis worship, it was all led and ran by women. And this is all the people in Ephesus were used to until Christianity came into play. And now here's Christianity that comes in, and they're seeing Paul in leadership, and they're seeing Timothy in leadership. And my best guess is that there were some people that didn't like that because it wasn't what they were used to seeing. And so they began to challenge that. And so Paul had to write to them to help them understand this is the way that God has created this thing we call church to operate in order for it to be healthy and for it to move forward in a way that's going to honor God. Because what these people were used to was seeing all the females in authority in Ephesus. As a matter of fact, the temple of Artemis was so important that it wasn't only the central of Artemis worship, but it was also the bank. I mean, this is how big of a temple this was and how important of a place this was. This is where you actually went to do your banking. This is where you went to do your worship. This is where you went to get blessed or whatever by the goddess, and that's what people believe. So their whole world was really uh, centralized around this temple of Artemis and, and this Diana Artemis worship. And we see here that Paul is talking about uh, women in leadership, but yet you see in Paul's ministry, as we read throughout his letters, that women are definitely not inferior in the eyes of God. We also see in Paul's ministry that Paul was not a misogynist either, because we see that Paul had women deaconesses and had women in various roles and things like that, and women are not inferior in the eyes of God. However, what Paul reiterates here is that there's an order in creation of differing responsibilities that God gave to men and that God gave to women. That's why Paul goes back and references creation. He says, remember, it was Eve who was deceived in the garden, but yet it was Adam who stood there and disobeyed. Now, there's a difference between you being taken by a sleazy car salesman that you didn't know that the car was junk, and he talks you into it and kind of, you know, gives you the sleaze spiel, and then you end up buying it, or you knowing the car's bad and you still buy it anyways. There's a big difference in those two scenarios. The Bible says that Eve was deceived. The Bible never blames the fall of man and the fall of creation on Eve. We never see that. We always see that responsibility being given to Adam because it was Adam who was given the responsibility to lead spiritually his family and to lead his wife. Just like we see repeated all throughout the epistles as we see repeated all throughout Scripture, especially in Ephesians chapter 5 where he begins to talk about how Christ is the head of the church and we are the bride of Christ just as the husband is supposed to love his Christ as Christ loves the church. And we see this order in creation. It doesn't mean that the man is more important. It doesn't mean the husband is somehow superior or smarter. Definitely not smarter sometimes. <laughs> but we see that there's no superiority there 
but rather that there is a difference of roles and responsibilities. That there are different responsibilities that God has given to men uh, rather than to women. Now, we see that both Adam and Eve disobeyed, but we see that Adam was created with certain God-given responsibilities, the first of which was to lead his family, and he failed to lead his wife because the Bible doesn't say Adam was off working on, you know, some project or fishing. The Bible said that when the serpent came and tempted Eve, then she took of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave to her husband who was there with her. That's what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3. So apparently Adam either didn't share this information with Eve, or he just remained silent for whatever reason, for a cowardice, for him uh, selfishly really always wanting to have the fruit and want to see what happened to Eve first. But he let her go through with it without stepping in there. He let her go through with it. And then not only did he go let, watch her go through, but then he participated as well. She was deceived, but he just straight up transgressed and disobeyed. And so as we see here, the man was called to lead his family, to lead his wife, not dominate her, but to lead her, to be someone worth following. This is why Paul is reiterating here these different roles because he's wanting to make sure that he's being clear about this, that it's not something where men are superior or better than women, but he's talking about leadership in the context of the church, and he's talking about leadership in the context of the home as well, because we see that God is the same in all of his different order throughout creation and throughout authority and leadership. We see that, we see that, that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and we see that we are re referenced as the bride of Christ, that we are to follow Christ, that he is the head, and that we are to be submitted to his authority. We also see in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul reiterates the same idea of because Christ is the head of the church, he said the husband is to love his wife like Christ loved the church and that we are to be co-equal people, but yet having different responsibilities. And let me tell you this. I have yet to meet a married woman who does not want her husband to take spiritual leadership in the home. And ladies, you can amen me, shout me down if you want to. I have never met a woman that says, I love dragging my husband to church. <laughs> never heard a woman who says, Oh, it's okay if my husband doesn't want to pray with our children or pray with me. I can take care of that. I, that's my responsibility. You, you, I don't hear any women wanting their men to not be a spiritual leader in their home. Matter of fact, she only wants to nurture that and encourage that. And she tries to give that role to the man. But too often, men fall into stereotypes and we just let the ladies do all of the child rearing and the spiritual temperature of the home. We just depend on them to do all that. Oh, they'll teach them about Jesus, and I don't really know how to have those awkward conversations anyways. And so we just, just like Adam, walk away from our responsibility. And men, we need to take our place and take our role, and our wives want us to take the role of being a spiritual leader in our home. They want us to be the man that we, that we take the lead in praying about situations where it may come to a job situation and oh, I don't know what to do about this job or that job. Our wives want us to come beside them and say, let's pray about this. You know how much security and confidence that gives your spouse? 
that the husband is the one taking charge, saying, I know we're tired, I know that we stayed up late, or I know that we just got back from vacation or what have you, and I know everybody's exhausted, but let's go to church as a family this morning. Women want that from their husbands. They want that. They don't want to drag them out of bed or guilt trip them. Men don't want that, and women don't want that. It's not healthy. But when we see the order of creation, not order of importance, but order of creation, and we see marriage relationships function the way that God designed them to, you see stronger marriages. You see happy, healthier marriages. You see stronger kids being raised because you see the couple is together and the man has taken that responsibility that God has given him as a spiritual leader in the home. You see, the woman, because of her nurturing nature, wants to create an environment in the home where she has a godly marriage, where she's raising godly kids, and if she has to take the initiative, she will. And God bless you ladies for doing that. But really, men, you should be doing that. Oh, don't shout me down when I'm preaching good. You should be doing that, men. You should be taking that initiative. It's time for you to step up because imagine with me a church full of men on fire for God. Imagine with me, if you will, a church full of men who are taking their God-given place to lead spiritually and to say yes to the things they need to say yes to and to say no to the things of the world they need to say no to and to be the standard bearer for their family and lead their family in who God has called them to be and lead their churches into the places God has called them to lead into. Imagine with me a church full of men on fire for God who are taking the responsibility instead of allowing themselves to still watch Eve eat the apple and while we sit by and go, hope it works out for you. That's not God honoring men. It's time for us to step up. It's time for us to be those men who are praying with our spouses, who instead of waiting for our spouse to open the Scripture, that we take the lead and we say, let's get into Scripture together. Let's say, let's go to church together. Let's make sure that the alarm clock is set. I know that football season's coming. But where's your priority at? Amen, somebody? Amen. Where's your leadership at? What type of tone are you setting in your home, men? That's your responsibility to set that tone. Because if you don't do it, your wife cares enough about it and sees it's important enough that she's still going to do it. But you shouldn't put her in a situation where she has to do that because she wants you to. She wants you to take that lead. She wants you to set that tone in the home. Amen, somebody. Amen. You see, Paul takes the same order in the church because he doesn't differ from the home, from the family, from the way Christ is the head of the church. And then he doesn't change just because culture may be a little different in Ephesus. So some people want to whisk the scripture text away and say, oh, it's just culture. But I don't see that in the way that God operates with Christ being the head of the church. And I don't see that the way that we're the bride of Christ. I don't see that in the order of creation and in the way that God wants the family to operate and thrive and succeed. So why would we think differently about the church? So here we go. You ready for this? This is my personal, humble interpretation of this verse. All right? as it applies to the local church. You can disagree with me and we can still be friends, all right? Because this is not a heaven or hell issue. Not a heaven or hell issue. We can still disagree and be friends, but here's what I believe that this means. 
I believe that for the local church, for us, that this means that men have been given the responsibility in the church to be the spiritual covering and spiritual authority in the local gathering, the church. I believe that women can teach. I believe that women can be in various leadership roles. We see that all throughout Paul's ministry. But that the primary spiritual authority over the church, the pastor and the elders, are supposed to be roles that are held by that of a man. Not because men are better, not because men are smarter, but because rather it's the order of creation and the order of responsibility. That's the way the home's set up to succeed, and I believe that's the way that the church should be set up in order to succeed. And that's the way that I see that. So, sir, what if God is calling on you today to lead your home and to step up in this local church and lead spiritually, to help this church grow spiritually, to help your home grow spiritually? Guess what? He is calling you to do that. You want to know why? Because it's your role. Because it's your responsibility, your wife wants you to step up, this church needs you to step up, and it's time for you to lead. It's time for you to stop making excuses. It's time for you to lead. Verse 15 is really interesting, and I honestly have no idea what it means. (laughs) That's comforting when the pastor says that, right? (laughs) That'll let you know we all have hope. Verse 15 says this, it's really odd, and I did a ton of study on this because I was looking for clarity here because there there are a hundred different people saying a hundred different things and I want to make sure that what I'm sharing is as close to what I believe was the intent of the author and the intent of the Holy Spirit and and so as I share this with you I, I will submit to you that I could very well be wrong but this is my interpretation of this because it's a very difficult text and I couldn't find anyone in all of my study, and I spent a lot of time studying this one. I couldn't find anybody who really agreed on anything, so I just have to give you what I believe is the truth, and you can either agree with it, chew on it for a little bit, whatever you want to do with it's fine, okay? Verse 15 is odd because here's what it says. It says, yet she, the woman, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. She will be saved in childbearing. Man, that's really an odd statement. She'll be saved in childbearing. Now, the Apostle Paul was hard rail against salvation through works. So if women were saved or made right in the eyes of God through being able to have children, then it begs the question of what about being saved by faith and faith alone. I don't think Paul is avoiding or, or, or detracting from his statement and his main message about being saved by faith and not through works because this would mean that only women who can birth children would be able to be saved, and that doesn't make sense. So we have to throw that one to the side. That's not what that means. So what does it mean as we read this? So I think if I give you a little bit more context that we can all understand what verse 15 means, and hopefully we can all uh, come to some sort of conclusion on this. Now remember, Artemis was the goddess of fertility, and women would go worship the goddess, believing that they would be blessed in childbearing by her. I believe that Paul was drawing a strong contrast between the Ephesians' view of childbirth and God's view of childbirth. He was kind of finishing his thoughts to Timothy about this subject of eternity, eternity mattering more by making sure that people saw the importance of the furthering and preserving and moving forward of the message of the gospel, that women have a certain role that a man simply cannot take because it was given to women and not to men. We cannot have children. Now, 
for the message of the gospel to continue and for the message of salvation, for people to be saved through the next generation, it would have to happen through childbirth and through these women who are giving birth to these children to continue in faith, to continue in love, to continue in holiness, to continue in self-control, raising children who would then become representatives of Christ, ensuring that the church grows and spreads as an example to bring salvation to the world. Romans 8 and 29 says this, For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be, that Jesus might be, the firstborn among many brethren. So I believe here that verse 15, as we look at, yet she'll be saved through childbearing if she continues in faith, love, and holiness with self-control, I believe that is saying that she has the mandate and responsibility to make sure that the message of the gospel continues beyond the current generation, and that it brings salvation to her and to her household as People are raised in an atmosphere conducive to the message of the gospel. And as I see that, that's kind of the conclusion that I have come to. And I really think that the whole gist of chapter 2, as we're looking at this letter that was written to Timothy, I think the main thing that is the thread that weaves through all of it is that regardless of your circumstance, regardless of how you may view the world, regardless of the context of the culture of the day that eternity matters more that we need to live our lives with an eternal perspective that we need to grow in godliness and Christ likeness to not get caught up in this world and the distractions that would want us to focus on temporary comforts or the pleasures of this life or what the pressures in the world are trying to tell us to do or what we're used to seeing in the world and we think that we somehow need to bring it into our lives as Christians and that we can't make a stand for what's right and what's pure and what's holy and what's just, but rather that instead of us fighting, rather than us only thinking that our purpose is accomplished when we get our way, that our goal instead... And our role instead becomes to use whatever we've been given, whatever role, whatever responsibility, whatever opportunity that we have been given to impact eternity. Because regardless of what the world may be screaming at us, regardless of what the government may be screaming at us, regardless of the fears that we may have, regardless of how important we may try to make ourselves to other people and dress ourselves up in a way that people would think we were important or spiritual or rather uh, feel that we have to have a certain position in order to be special or important that we go, you know what, all this stuff, really eternity matters more than any of it. And so why don't I allow my care for other people, my concern for other people, my desire to do everything as unto the Lord, why don't I allow that to navigate the way I interact with a culture that may be very counterintuitive to the life of a Christian, but yet that I can still be a light in the darkness, that I can still be someone who is showing forth the goodness of God at work in my life, that I can still be that leader that I was called to be, that I can still have that responsibility that I was given, I can still be that person of prayer instead of that person just adding to the noise of negativity, that I can still be that champion of truth and that champion of love and grace and reconciliation instead of being just another person judging everyone and another person being the individual that's trying to compare themselves to another wickedness to make myself feel better. Instead, why don't I prioritize my time and my heart and my effort and my energy on eternity? Because at the end of the day, when our life is over, eternity matters more. 
And I hope we figure that out before we're actually experiencing eternity. Now, we'll never really understand eternity until we experience it, but yet we have an idea of what eternity is like. We sing about it, we read about it, we watch movies about it, but we really don't know what eternity is like. We have a glimpse of it, but I believe that even though we may not fully understand all the intricacies of eternity, the one thing we do understand is that it matters more. We only look at the pain that we're going through now and the suffering we're going through now, the discomfort that we're going through now, and, and yes, Jesus cares about all those things too. So don't misunderstand me this morning that Jesus is somehow not caring about your current situation. But let me tell you that regardless of the persecution may, you may be facing at work, regardless of the frustration you may have with the government right now, regardless of the things you're chasing after to try to find some sense of importance or meaning, eternity matters more. What if when you leave this place, you leave with a different perspective than when you came in? That when you sit down at a restaurant or you go back to your home and you sit with your family to have a meal, what if instead of just going through the motions, you began to think about eternity and the impact that you're making maybe on your children or impact that you're making on your coworkers tomorrow or maybe the impact that you could possibly have on the waiter or waitress or the person even greeting you at the door or maybe a familiar friend that you run into later on today. And when they begin to share with you, you begin to, instead of think about how you'd rather be somewhere else or how you're being inconvenienced or how things aren't going your way, instead you begin to think about eternity because eternity matters more. And, and instead of going home and just looking for that next big purchase to make you feel some sense of worth or make you feel some pulse, instead you begin to think about eternity and eternity matters more. You begin to think about how eternity matters more in the way you handle your finances, in the way that you interact with other people, in the way that you treat your family, the way you engage your children today, the way you engage your grandchildren, the way you engage your friends, the way you maybe even interact with someone before you leave this building today, that you could be making a difference in someone's eternity and God could use you in such a powerful way because eternity matters more. Amen? Amen. So my charge to each one of us, myself included, is to live our lives like eternity matters more, because it does. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Word of Grace. For more sermons or any other information, visit wogcc.com.